0: If you will, with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. We are picking up this morning in the middle of a section where Peter's giving instructions about how we are to live in light of the realities of the Gospel. That we have received the Gospel, that God has saved us by the Gospel, that He's caused us to be born again. Now what? What should life look like? What should look very different from what it did before? We saw last week The emphasis on holiness. And this week that is continuing with further instructions. But I want to focus our time this morning particularly on a phrase that we find in verse 17. And look at the implications of what that phrase means for us. So beginning in verse 17 we read, Peter, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, and if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Let's go again. Father, again, I'm reminded of Psalm 101, that you will look with favor on the faithful in the land. By your Spirit, by the preaching of the Gospel, by hearing the Word, you have called us to yourself you have given us a new heart. If we are in Christ, you have given us a new heart with new desires. A heart that is especially fixed on Christ and out of a love for Him, desires with zeal to please Him to live with gratitude for what in His grace He has done for us. Lord, I pray that none of us here would make the damnable mistake, the great error of presuming that the Gospel of the grace of God allows us to now live in sin without consequence. Rather, Lord, we would be a people who knowing we will have to give an account and knowing that we love our Savior will strive with every ounce of our being to be conformed to the image of Christ. So, Father, let us live in that light. May you instruct us from your word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The theme I want to place before your attention this morning is God's judgment according to deeds. God's judgment according to deeds. Taken, of course, from this phrase that we find in verse 17 of chapter one, First Peter. We read again of God, the Father, that He is the one who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Peter does not use this phrase to be intentionally provocative. He's not saying something here that is intended to seem contradictory to his prior statements that he's made in chapter 1 about the sovereign work of God in salvation. In his mind, there is no conflict at all between God sovereignly causing His people to be born again to a living hope. And God being the one who will render judgment according to each person's work. There's no conflict there. For Peter, this phrase is actually a very obvious one. It's a given. It's an assumption. It's basic to Christianity it's Christianity 101 you take a membership class when you join the church you discuss the gospel this is this is gospel 101 there is no correction here that peter is providing of the apostle paul's doctrine of justification by faith alone. He's not adding a qualification here. He's not instructing these churches and saying, Paul kind of overstated the case, let me add a qualification. Peter takes it as a gift that the churches he is writing to believe themselves that God judges according to works. And that this judgment is not just of unbelievers, but of believers. He says of them in verse 17, again, if you call on Him as Father, you churches of Cappadocia, Bithynia, Pontus, Galatia, you believers, he's addressing Christians. And assuming that the answer they would give to this conditional statement is that this is what they believe. They call on God as their Father and as the One who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. This is also not a truth. That is unique to Peter. He's not the only one who teaches this, who uses these phrases in this language to describe God. The Apostle Paul himself teaches the very same thing from the passage that we read earlier in Romans chapter 2, verses 6 to 11. Paul's writing of God's coming work of judgment, and he's, he's specifically taking aim at hypocrites who claim to know God and who who preach, you shall not commit adultery while committing adultery themselves. And in that context, he says, of God, He will render to each one according to His works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, He will give eternal life No partiality. First Peter chapter 1, verse 17, he judges impartially. Likewise, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, Paul says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This is something also that Jesus teaches. Matthew chapter 16, verse 27, we read, For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. There are many other passages throughout the New Testament and really throughout the whole Bible that we could look at that say the very same thing. But the point is that all throughout we find statement after statement saying that God will render judgment according to each person's work. And yet, at the same time, all throughout the Bible, we find these glorious statements of the gracious work of God in salvation to forgive sinners freely, apart from works. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Romans chapter 3, verse 20, the very same book, where Paul speaks about a judgment according to works. In chapter 3, verse 20, he says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. What are we to make of this? On the one hand, it is very clear that salvation is a work of God. It is God who justifies. It is God who... It is God who predetermines and predestines. It is God who causes His Spirit to create new resurrection life in dead sinners. And there are no works that can be done to make a person righteous before God. And yet on the other hand, when God judges the world and all must stand before the judgment seat of Christ, He will render to each one according to His work. Add to this the fact that Peter raises the prospect of this coming judgment before believers as a means of warning and compelling them to live righteously. He says again in verse 17, if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. This has an implication for how you ought to live in the manner you live. Conduct yourselves with fear. This is not a judgment that we will be exempt from. And because of that, it determine the choices that we make now. Because we will have to answer for those choices. The ones we make on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. What are we to make of this? What, what does it mean that believers will have to give an account? And I don't. I, I want to say I, I'm not raising this simply as an interesting theological issue to contemplate this morning. I raise this because the proper understanding of God's coming judgment is one of the key drivers and motivators for God's people to live righteously. To live more like Christ. To be a people who obey from the heart. I suspect that if this truth were contemplated more often than it is, I suspect that we would probably have far less Christians living just like the world. Because you would know you're going to have to face a judgment. You knew, and you were regularly, consciously aware that a day is coming when you are going to have to stand before the Lord and He may ask you, why did you not speak to me regularly? I gave you full access to me by the Spirit did you not often speak to me in prayer? I suspect if we were more aware more meditative on the reality of this coming account I suspect we would not be as prayerless as we are. I suspect that our prayer meetings would not be the least important meetings of our schedule. I suspect rather that it would be an occasion that we would all relish in to speak to the King, and to bring before the King our needs. And the great opportunity to see him answer those needs. I'll tell you, that's one of the great things about our prayer meetings. I have a whole list of time after time after time of things that have happened here at this church where there is no way we could take care of the needs that we had. No way. Got hardly any money in the bank at one time. Roofs falling apart, leaking all over the place. We've got no money. We're a tiny church. We're going to have to raise 30,000 so dollars? What are we going to do? Guess we'll do what what anyone should do in that situation: pray. And we pray, and we pray, and we pray. Out of the blue, we get a we get contacted by a local bank. There's a there's a trust that the church has never received before, that dates back to the '80s. This bank just gets bought out by a larger bank. The larger bank does an audit, and they discover the church never received the, the trust. Thirty or so years ago, long gone, out of the blue, what we pay for AC unit, heating unit, going out. How are we going to pay for this? I don't out of the blue, someone calls. Hey, I'm interested in this little piece of land you all never use. How much will you take for it? We'll take this amount. We get a quote back for the AC unit. How much is it going to be for that exact amount? Story after story after story. friends. Times where we go to the king and we say, king, we don't know what to do. Suspect if we had more confidence in our own king. And I suspect that if we knew that we would approach that king in the future, that our times of prayer would be one of the sweetest moments that we have. And time and time again, he's he showed us why. So this is an issue, friends, that needs to be raised. Because really, it goes right to the heart of holiness. And and what it means to live as a follower of Christ, dependent on the Lord. What it means to be able to obey His commandments with no power of our own. Peter says here in the context that we are to be holy because he is holy, and this, this has implications. So as we consider this question, I, I want to go ahead and think through it, and I want to point out some or one important aspect of this passage that should inform the conclusions that we arrive at as to the meaning of what it means, that God will will judge us according to each one's work. And one thing that I want to point out, first of all, is the fact that the coming judgment of believers does not threaten our eternal salvation. The coming judgment of believers, born again, He's caused us to be born again believers, does not threaten our eternal salvation. Notice with me that Peter begins here with a conditional statement. He says, if you call on Him as Father, meaning if you, if you invoke His name, if you, if you address Him as your God, as your Father, if you pray to Him. And Peter assumes here the sincerity of the believer's prayers. He's assuming God is their Father. They are not condemned before Him. They do not stand under His judgment, but He is their God and they are His people. And this assumption is then confirmed by what He says of these believers in verse 18. He says, they are to conduct themselves with fear knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, verse 19, and ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. Christ. These are believers who before God are justified. The blood of the Lamb has not failed. The blood of the Lamb is not going to fade away over time. They're ransomed, they're secured, they're righteous before God. They have an interceder on their behalf and they have been sealed as God's holy people by the Holy Spirit. Peter calls them exiles. Again, or he says they're, they're living in exile, which also signifies they're no longer part of the world. They're different. God has made them different. In chapter 2, verse 9, he says further that they are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for His own possession. That status... That privileged position before God is not being called into question here. It's not under threat, and Peter sees no contradiction between the sovereign work of God whereby he freely justifies his people by faith and they are secure in him and the reality that God is still an impartial judge and that they will have to give an account. You're not contradictory. Likewise, if you are in Christ, the same is true for you. Your standing before God as a righteous, justified, born again, new covenant, disciple of Christ is not determined by your works. Not justified on the basis of works. You can't earn your way to God. You can't clean up your own life before you decide to start trusting and obeying God. No amount of religious service will make you pleasing in the sight of God. The only way that you can be righteous before Him is if you have received Christ as your Savior, if Christ has ransomed you from your sins by His blood, and all you have is to plead the blood before Christ, or before God. The only way anyone can be justified before God. But again, that does not contradict the reality that you will still have to give an account and that you will be judged in accordance with your deeds. So what does something like this look like? And how should it drive us to vigilantly pursue holiness and even warn us against habitual Disobedience. Well, I want to draw your attention this morning to Matthew twenty-five, which I think it provides a very helpful illustration of how this could look in the future. Matthew twenty-five, particularly in verses fourteen to thirty, here in this passage, Jesus tells one of three. Parables that is about the need to be ready for the coming of the Son of Man, to be ready for Christ's return and his final judgment. And one of the things that indicates that this is what's going on in the context is that at the end of this particular parable in verse 30, the consequences for not being ready and for being a disobedient servant is a judgment of being cast into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. So, so this, this is a parable here about the future return and the last judgment. And in this parable, he tells the story about three different servants. And each servant is given the responsibility of managing money for their their master, while he is away, particularly in the form of talents, which would have been roughly the equivalent of about 20 years' worth of, of work. The master gives one servant five talents, he gives another servant two talents, and he gives yet another servant one talent. And after being away for some time, the master then returns, and the servants have to give an account for how they have managed the talents that they've received. When the first two servants are called to account, both of them have doubled what they had received from the Master. They, they used the talents. They put them to work. They conducted trade. They engaged in business. And and over the years, their work resulted in even more talents. It bore fruit. And so when they came before the Master, they are then commended by Him for doubling what He had given them. They were responsible with it. But, But they also had a desire to please their Master. They knew that he would be returning, and so they had a desire to to do something with the talents and to have something to give to him when he returns. The third servant, however, didn't think too highly of the master. He considered him to be a rather harsh master. And so he didn't have any mind to, to do anything with the talents. He just buried them. He he hid them away and waited for the Master's return. And because he squandered the opportunity to use the Master's talents and to put them to work, because he, in essence, was a faithless servant who showed no regard for the Master, what talent he had been given was taken away and he himself was cast away in judgment. Now this third servant, of course, represents an unbeliever. But particularly an unbeliever who is aware of the will of God. In in Jesus' day, this is is sort of a direct assault on the Jews of the day. They had the law. They they knew His will. They, They knew that their own hearts needed to be circumcised. They... They knew that they needed the work of God to even obey the law. They had the privileged position of being those who had the prophets and had the covenants. They had the talents. And they squandered it. They did nothing for the master. In our own day, this would be the equivalent of the false Christian. This would be the equivalent of a professing believer who claims to know God, who's aware of the law of God, who's aware of the call to holiness, but who produces no fruit. Conversion. That's the time, Christ's turn, Christ that this, this person an and it will become manifest that they actually never knew Christ. This is the kind of person, in other words, that Jesus also speaks about in the Gospels who in the final judgment will acknowledge Jesus as Lord. Will say of Jesus, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in Your name? Will acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Jesus will say to them, depart from Me, for I never knew You you worker of lawlessness, that their life showed no signs of knowing God because they remained workers of lawlessness, of law-breaking, of knowing the law and continuing to transgress it. Their works in the last day will reveal the falsehood of their profession. The other two servants, however, represent faithful believers. And what is, clear, what is clear here is that they too have to give an account. The Master comes to them and they give an account. But the accounting that they give serves most especially to reveal who they are. To reveal that they are indeed faithful servants of the Master. And that they love the Master. The Lord has given them responsibilities. He's given them the Gospel. He's given them His Word and His commands. He's united them to His body, the church. They've been consistently faithful with what they have received and with the gifting that they have. It doesn't mean, of course, that they never stumble. But when the Master returns, what it does mean is that it will be demonstrably obvious that they have been faithful. They've produced fruit. And when they are judged according to their works, it will be clear that their work bears the mark of the Holy Spirit. True conversion, friends, produces true Christians. A good tree that is made a good tree produces good fruit. Receiving the Holy Spirit produces actual holiness. And the knowledge that the Master will return and the knowledge that the Father who judges impartially will call us to account should cause us to conduct ourselves accordingly. If you're in Christ, you you have been given responsibilities. You've been given His Word. You've been given non-negotiable tasks as ambassadors of the Kingdom of God. And what you do with what you have received will reveal on the last day what kind of servant you are. The servant who is commended for being faithful, or the servant who is cast off for being faithless. And so the charge is to conduct yourself accordingly. As Peter says, to no longer live in the feudal ways inherited by your forefathers, to no longer live as you once did, just like the rest of the world. The Master is returning. And because He's returning, and because if you are in Christ, you love Him, then out of a desire to please the Master, you put the talents to work. By the grace of the Holy Spirit, it multiplies. Now, having said this, I think one of the dangers that can arise, certainly, from this very truth, is the danger of measuring yourself against others. In other words, there's a danger of looking at your life and then looking at someone, for example, like a John Piper, or an Alistair Begg, or a George Whitfield, and seeing in figures like this the fact that they have preached to thousands upon thousands of people. And when you think of the lives that people like this have impacted with the Gospel, and then you think of your, your tiny little sphere of influence. It can be very easy to get discouraged. And to wonder on the basis of you measuring yourself against the use of talents that others are doing can be very dangerous to fall into a kind of spiritual depression. How could the Lord ever be pleased with my tiny amount of fruit in comparison to these giants. But I want to remind you that in the parable of the talents, the servants who were commended by the Lord were not commended for the amount they returned to the Lord, but for what they had done with what they had been given. The servant who was commended by the Lord for returning four talents received the very same commendation as the servant who returned ten. Well done, good and faithful servant. Charles Spurgeon once told a vivid story that illustrates how this might play out in the Last Judgment. I won't read what he wrote with some of his more archaic language, but I'll I'll illustrate it with a similar story. At the Last Judgment, we may be able to witness someone like an R.C. Sproul coming before the Lord. Having to give an account before the Lord. And when we hear the Lord say to a man like Sproul, well done, good and faithful servant, I will set you over much. We may all be very unsurprised. Perhaps some of you have been blessed by the ministry of R.C. Sproul. And that's what we may be saying to one another. Yes, I remember listening to Sproul's many sermons, his many lessons on the Bible. Our Sunday school class would listen to his ministry and its teachings, and we profited greatly from the ministry that, that he, he started. Of course, it's, it's unsurprising that Sproul would receive this commendation. I I bought for my children all of his his children's books. And what a delight they were to read whenever we we read them and, and how creative he was to communicate the Gospel in these beautiful little stories. It's unsurprising to see Dr. Sproul receive this commendation. But then after Dr. Sproul receives his commendation, we we may then see some little woman come before the Lord. We don't know who that is. We've never seen her before. We've never heard of her. She doesn't look like any great person. And we start asking around, who is this? Who is this who's approaching the Lord? Does anyone know? And you ask around and someone else says, no, I've, I've never heard of her. And, and you're asking. You want to know who is this woman who is standing before the Lord about to give an account. And finally, you, you come across someone who, who knew her. And that person says, oh, I, I know exactly who this woman is. And you ask, what, what did she do? And the person tells you, well, the... The Lord gave her some children. And every day, from the moment she knew she was pregnant, she began to pray for those children. And when she was when those children were born, she she continued to pray for those children. And she would read the Bible to those children. And she would she would instruct her children in the ways of the gospel. She she herself had known the Lord, and she was teaching her children how to know the Lord. And she did this throughout their whole lives. Later they grew up, and they turned away from their mother's teaching. They turned to the world. And it grieved her. She was full of sorrow. But even in the midst of that sorrow, she didn't stop praying for them. She went to the Master. And she pleaded on their behalf. Oh Lord, You were gracious to me. Be gracious to my children. Later in her life, she would fall ill. And even in her illness, as her children would come to visit her, they still had not known the Lord. And she still, to her last breath, would pray for them and and would exhort them Know the Lord. She would eventually pass, not ever seeing them, come to know the Lord. And then that person might turn our attention, but you see? You see those two people over there? Those are her children. And they're here because of her prayers. Because day after day after day, she prayed for her children. And she shared the gospel with them. And they know the Lord now because of her. And When you hear that, you will know. This is why she also is receiving the very same commendation that the great Dr. Sproul has received. This is why at this moment she is hearing the words well done, good and faithful servant. I set you over a little and now I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of the kingdom. friends. It does not matter the amount talents you produce. What matters is that you are faithful with what little the Lord has given to you. And in the last day of the judgment, when He renders each according to their works, the judgment that He will give to those who have been faithful with what they have received from their great will be well done, good and faithful servant. So friends, that's the the drive for us. We have a good Master. And He has given us great responsibilities. But He has not left us to ourselves. He has given us access to Himself by the Spirit to Plead for His great mercies. And if we live our lives and conduct ourselves in fear as good servants who have come to know the Lord, there is a great reward that awaits each one of us. So friends, I just want to encourage you this morning to nothing more simple faithfulness. The Lord has given us a word that tells us how we are to live, to be holy, and to live our lives in accordance with that word. The promise is the crown of righteousness. Father, it is a great honor to be able to call You Father. And to acknowledge You as our King and Savior. And as our King, You have ransomed us by the blood of Christ. And as our King, You have given us talents. And I pray, Lord, that as we have received the little talents that we have received that we would be faithful with them. That here at this little church with these little talents we would be servants who would in full dependence upon you would conduct the ministry of the church in prayer, and the power of the Holy Spirit. And that through dependence on You, these little talents would be multiplied. And I pray for each of us as individuals, that the, the spheres that we have in our families, that these talents that You have given to us, that we would be faithful over them. Lord, that You would rebuke us in our sloth, we would be zealous for righteousness. And I pray lastly, for those who don't know You and who cannot call You Father, or who believe they have known You and have squandered the talents, Lord, that this day would be the day that in truth they would cry out to You, trust in you, repent of their sins, and be given a new talent to be faithful with. That you would bless it. And that standing before you on the last day, would say to them, well done, good and faithful servant. I pray this in Jesus' name.